I'm still pretty tired. Just not, I now have, I now know a level. Like, I think I'm at the tiredest level right now that norm, like pre baby, I would have been like, oh, I'm really tired tonight. Whereas now you're like, Hey, you know, this is getting better. Yeah. This is like, this is like, I know a tiredness that is soul destroying now. And so this is just mm-hmm. like tired. Yeah, this is no longer so tired that Alan gets to edit out you saying our Twitter account is at Fun Fact Pod. On the- Wait, is that not our <laughs> on the part what where we <laughs> where we invite people to <laughs> what? Oh, it's Fun Fact FM. It's a Fun Fact FM. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's figure, let's see if you figure out what I'm doing tonight. You are doing an etymology fact. <laughs> no. From the 1800s. Nope. No. no. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, but no. Uh, okay. I just, that's just me learning, but just a predictive model. <laughs> exactly. I've developed. Yeah, you've been trained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's, here we go. Fun fact. Chester A. Arthur, 21st president of the United States of America, was considered the least likely person to clean up corruption, but he did it anyway. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. The least likely at uh, the time of all of all like candidates. Kind of. Yeah. We'll get into it. So it's a it's it's a little bit of a complicated story, and I apologize in advance. That's not what you want to hear at the beginning of a story. <laughs> but uh, but I mean, I really love this story, so maybe that's why I'm. But I'm, it'll finally get us, uh, you know, our quota of Chester facts. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm I'm probably you know too in love with the story, but we'll we'll see how it goes. So so Chester A. Arthur, as I said, the 21st president of the United States, uh, mm-hmm. but he only became president because of an assassination. Ah. Yeah. He was vice president for James A. Garfield. Garfield was assassinated? Garfield was assassinated. Ah, so so one of the, he's not one of like the top two assassinations. Oh, he's <laughs> off my radar. That you know about. Well, <laughs> presidential assassinations. I mean, if you're just going to go into Yeah, the... it's actually kind of true. Well, oh, let's see. Who who would be the top two for you? I mean, I would go with Lincoln and JFK. Yeah. 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 Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, so, they're just kind of getting the limelight as far as being yeah. assassinated goes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so there's a, you need a little bit of background for this fact. Definitely. So, my, my Chester A. Arthur knowledge is a little, <laughs> is a little shallow. Like, in, yeah. you know, in the Canadian textbooks, they definitely, I mean, they have a Chester A. Arthur chapter, but they don't go into like a whole textbook. On, on oh, okay. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know. It's because in Canada, that's yeah. right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So at the time, the federal government operated under what was called the patronage system. So this is like the mid-1800s? Yeah, he was president from 1881 to 1885. Okay. So... The patronage system was basically the idea that if you won an election, you should and would give cushy civil service jobs to like all your supporters and your friends and your relatives, like whoever kind of was on your side. The idea here was that the spoils of of the of an election were similar to like the spoils of war. Like if you won, you should get to do you should get to reap the benefits. And so then like the people who ran all the various departments, like what we would call now the deep state, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I, would, uh, I guess. Would, I'm not. Al- Alan would, would replaced. call it that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, I coined that, yeah. that term, yeah. Um, they would be replaced. The, they would be replaced yeah. uh, with people not who were experienced at doing those things, but who knew the new uh, victor. Right, exactly. And so there'd just be a massive turnover. And whoever was elected would be super incentivized to like, take advantage of their position, right? Because they were only going to be there for as long as their guy was in charge. Oh, right. Like if you are in charge of the Postal Service and you're only in charge of the Postal Service because 
Garfield appointed you and right. you're his brother-in-law, right. then you don't really have any incentive to like make it better. You're right. just exactly. going to be like, hey, how can I get like free stamps or whatever? Yeah. What am I going to get out of this? Mm-hmm. So leading up to the election of Garfield, the Republican Party was torn between people who believed in this patronage system and people who supported a permanent merit-based civil service. Right, which is what we have. Which is what we have more now. Or less and Garfield, today. well, which is something like what we have now. So <laughs> uh, Garfield was on the side of reform. And Arthur was chosen to be his VP because he was considered a patronage guy. Ah, okay. He'd, he was part of this Republican political machine in New York. He'd been given the cushiest job in the U.S. at the time, which was the customs collector of New York because it was like the biggest port. And it, you could like skim off all the tariffs and bribes. And oh, stuff yeah. For goods. That would be a great thing to abuse if you incredible. were the sort of person who abused an official position. Yeah. Incredible. So he, he was put on the ticket so that the party wouldn't split. It was like, OK, the, the top of the line of the ticket is going to be this guy who favors this thing. And then we'll put this other guy here to, to counterbalance it. Right. Pragmatic. Right. So Garfield was shot by an assassin who believed that he was later proved to be mentally deranged. He believed he was friends with Arthur. And that if he killed Garfield, Arthur would become president and give him one of these cushy government jobs. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. He also believed that Arthur would pardon him for helping him attain the presidency. Right. Right. So now, at the time that that Garfield was shot and Arthur became president, the papers of the, of the day described him pretty poorly. <laughs> like, to say the least. The, a Chicago Tribune editorial described it as... A pending calamity of the utmost magnitude. For to, that, the calamity is Chester becoming uh, president. Is Chester A. Arthur becoming president? Right. The New York Times wrote that Arthur was about the last man who would be considered eligible for the mm. job, hmm. and even his closest friends were, in a later biography, reported to say things like, "Chet Arthur, president? Good God!" <laughs> like, I mean, this is a person who was selected because they were the nominal defender of corruption. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, but. There was a woman uh, who at the time was pretty unknown, but has since come to light. Uh, There was a woman named Julia Sand who believed that Chester A. Arthur was actually a really good guy. Mm, And the reason she believed that was because when he started his career, before he got involved with sort of this Republican political machine, he had been a pretty like idealistic young uh, lawyer. And he had he had done a bunch of cases that were like pretty great. Like he so he, he he was. He won a case representing a woman, Elizabeth Jennings Graham, who was denied a seat on a streetcar in New York City because she was black. Oh, interesting. In the 1800s. And his his victory in that case led to the desegregation of the New York City streetcar lines. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. He also won a victory. There was like a, a slave owner from the South passing through New York on his way to somewhere. And he won a victory proving that because New York didn't allow slavery, the minute he crossed into New York, all his slaves were free. Ah, okay. So we got a diamond in the rough situation. He's got... Yeah, so he... In her mind, he'd he'd been this great guy who just kind of had fallen off. Okay. So she started writing him these letters just all the time saying, like, you have it in you, blah, 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 blah. And after he was elected, he shocked everyone by calling for the passage of the Pendleton Act, which was the nation's first ever civil service reform act. Huh. And he, and was it like an only Nixon can go to China sort of thing? Like, because he had all of his friends were the pro-corruption people who wouldn't have called themselves that pro-patronage people <laughs> yeah that he was able to kind of bring that yeah like how do you argue against that guy you know what i mean mm-hmm. and he was someone who like someone had died for this like his president had died for right literally system. because of patronage 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. But it was, he actually passed it. He passed it uh, in a lame duck session, which is kind of messed up. <laughs> but uh, like, do you know yeah, what that that's means? The, like, that's when he, he's already been replaced. But all of the, no, no, he hasn't been replaced, but a bunch of like senator, like uh, a bunch of sen- senators and Congress people have already been replaced, but they're still there. Right. And they're like, well, you can't unelect me if I do this. So bam. Exactly. Because he, he initially requested it and uh, Pendleton put it forth and Congress didn't pass it, but then Republicans lost seats in the 1882 Congress elections. And then the lame duck session was willing to do it. And then the Senate approved it and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he signed it. We may be in a rat hole. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. He signed it into law in 1883 and it, it, it required that government employees pass a competitive exam to win their job requiring merit and not party affiliation. Seems reasonable. Yeah. And anyway, this woman kept writing to him his whole presidency. Sometimes she was happy with what he did. He did some pretty bad things as well, but uh, like he passed the nation's first uh, uh, exclusion act, which is like really, really awful. Like Hmm. uh, not allowing Chinese people to be citizens. Uh, Really, really awful. And she wrote him like, what the heck? Like he vetoed it initially and then they overturned it. And then he, anyway, the point is this guy who no one expected to do this, who everyone thought was the champion of this patronage system is the reason we currently have a civil service. Huh? Interesting. Yeah. And and it was, you know, he had a cheerleader who believed in him that maybe helped tip the scales. Yeah. And in you fact, know, you have it in you to do good. Yeah, exactly. And when he when he died right before his death, he said that all of his papers should be burned except for the letters she wrote him. Oh, so they did have an impact. I mean, I don't think he ever responded to her, but she apparently had a huge impact on him. Huh. that's interesting. Yeah. People like that's there's like a modern version of that today in that someone who has like a high profile presence on the internet will get messages from many people. And sometimes you're overwhelmed and you can't respond to them or you can't respond to all of them. But sometimes there's certain ones that you like treasure and maybe don't actually make the, you know, you don't get out there and thank that person or, you know, or anything. But so it's kind of interesting for to see that in a historical thing 150 years ago. Yeah. Did you, in the lead up to the 2016 election, there was a podcast from the Washington Post called Presidential. Did you listen to it at all? no so they went through every every president up to that point and did a whole episode on them and it was the episode of that show that i first learned about this story oh, okay so i will put a link in the show notes and i i really recommend this episode and actually the entire podcast it was phenomenal it's it, you think it'd still be uh, yeah i guess i mean that's history it was in 2016 yeah. all of the president's rankings are more or less going to be yeah you can there you cannot listen to the well i actually they i think in the end they they had an episode for both candidates and then and then they now only have one for trump so sure yeah but maybe that will get need to get updated (laughs) well someday i do i do find these like presidential polls kind of fascinating that like over time they like have these surveys and it's like a tradition that they survey scientists and experts and the public periodically as to who who they think the greatest presidents are and they'll have like different categories like okay well how intelligent were they or you know how bold were they and things like that and part of why i find that fascinating or part of what i find fascinating about it is that they change over time yeah like the, the the public's opinion of alexander hamilton who not not a president obviously but like his these historical figures changes dramatically and then like if you yeah. do a poll of most important founding fathers it would be like it would go up so it's kind of yeah i mean he was about to leave the ten dollar bill and then they couldn't take yeah. it off anymore because he was so popular and lin-manuel miranda screwed it up <laughs> indeed um do you know much about airplanes do you, do you find do you have any interest in airplanes yeah 
I find them fascinating. I don't really know why. I'm not a huge war buff. Like, I find it kind of, you know, obviously the stories of, of wars gone by are interesting, but in particular airplanes I've always found really fascinating. Hmm. And one of the classic interesting planes is the Boeing B-52. Are you familiar with I, this plane? I, I mean, I know that it was a plane, yeah, and I know probably a few things about it, but not, not a yeah, ton. Yeah, if, if you think of a stereotypical, like, big like bomber it's like a big bomber right yeah giant uh you know with lots of engines on the wings uh then you're probably thinking of a b-52 yeah, just not huge. that many a huge plane um not many planes have a new wave band and a shot of liquor named after them so it's <laughs> pretty prominent <laughs> indeed yeah. um so I'll put I, don't, a, I don't know how many others but you know yeah i mean there's probably a few but like it's, it's a short list of planes yeah, with those exactly. things named after them so i'll put that in the show art um and i, and I have a fun, fun fact about it Fun fact, even though the B-52 had its first flight all the way back in 1952, it's expected to still be flying service in 2052, which will make it a 100-year plane design. 2052? Yeah. What? Yeah. How? Like like they will they have been maintaining and, you know, doing minor updates on the planes since the 1950s and they currently project they will still be in service in the 2050s so uh, hmm. if you okay if so if you go into a b-52 in 2019 that's still in service does it i do know does it still like do, do you feel like you're walking into a plane that was designed in 1952 i bet it <laughs> i bet there are aspects of it that, it, that do feel that way and then Holy aspects of it that are obviously moly. new yeah. I mean, I guess because I mean the core you know, design of it. Like, if you look at it, if you yeah. look at the B fifty two now, it still looks like it's not like they replaced it with like carbon fiber and stuff like that. Like, part of why they're still in service is because they're very cost effective to yeah, run. Yeah, I mean, I guess that, that you know they always say they don't make things like they used to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is like the uh, ultimate example of that, huh? Yeah, exactly. A hundred. It's just like, year... do we not have better technology now than we did in nineteen fifty something? Well, we have fancier technology, and it's not like they. This is the only airplane they have now, but sure. this is still like useful. There's a, a certain types of operations. But I'm like great. looking at the interior. It's very complicated. Yeah, and they got a lot of stuff in there. I mean, it's a big plane. There's a lot of stuff in there. So the, I, that idea of like they don't make it make things like they used to, and no. this idea of the you know older stuff having been built well and designed right. well and and made to last is also kind of fascinating to me which brought up to me a follow-up question okay if the b-52 is a hundred year plane what was the plane before the b-52 oh maybe there wasn't one well there was and it was apparently a less well-designed plane uh so if you allow it i'd like to tell the tale of the convair b-36 okay i i why would i not allow it that sounds great so I'd never even heard of this plane, and not that I'm, again, super, like, warplane buff, but, like, I feel like, you know, the main ones that are involved in stories in the core sort of wars and things like that, I've normally heard of them. I've never heard of the Convair B-36, but apparently hundreds of them were made, and it was, like, the predecessor uh, of the B-52. Mm. Like all good stories, the story of the Convair B-36 starts with a scheme. Okay. All right. So it was World War II in the U.S., was worried that if Britain fell uh, to the to the Germans, then they would need mm. a bomber that had a long enough range that they could actually bomb Berlin all the way from North America. Right, because they were using England as a jumping off point. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and so that was that would be they'd be in big trouble if they couldn't even do anything basically to to Berlin right. uh, and Germany. And so they ordered they put out the order: design us a bomber so big, so bold that it can fly <laughs> ten 
thousand miles. That's a lot of miles. That's a lot of miles, right? Yeah. And I don't know exactly how many kilometers is, but that seems like a lot. Sixteen thousand kilometers. Sixteen thousand kilometers. That's probably not what they how they specified it. But that's Probably what they wanted at the time. And so in 1943, they circumvented normal procurement procedures and waived the, the requirement that prototypes be tested before they made an order and ordered 100 B-36s sight unseen. That is bold. Yeah. I mean, it's wartime. You got to get things done, right? Yeah. We don't, we don't have time to stop and evaluate these things. <laughs> so after two years of hard work, the Convair B-36 was unveiled on August 20th, 1945, five days after u.s victory in japan oh no <laughs> Ta-da! look we made a really big plane oh no <laughs> so you think they would just take the order of 100 planes and be like embarrassed and yeah. then they would stop yeah but coincidentally around that time just after that the soviets tested their first nuclear bomb mm. and the cold war got started and the u.s found itself in the need of Planes that could deliver unpleasant things 10,000 miles away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they increased their order to 400 planes. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, so a lot of really big planes are coming your way. Um, what did they get for that? What was what was the kind of result of this, you know, ordered before the prototype was made uh, plane. So the B-36 is the largest mass-produced propeller aircraft ever made. Okay. As the longest wingspan of any combat aircraft, 230 feet, so like substantially longer than a hockey rink length. You're getting that's how everything in the U.S. is determined in length. That's Well, that's what they specifically asked for, I'm sure. (laughs) Oh, really? No. Have you ever heard of hockey? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Yeah, make it longer (laughs) than a hockey rink. I mean, you know, what is it? 34 of the, or 24 of the 30 teams, or or whatever, 32 teams in the U.S.? Yeah, but Yeah, I mean, in the 1940s, (laughs) I don't think. No, in 1940s, four out of six were, but whatever. No, that's still, that's a pretty good proportion. Yeah. Um, So I'll I'll send you a photo of kind of, just give you a size. So this, the, this plane that we're talking about now was replacing a previous super bomber uh, that was considered giant at the time. And so here's a photo, which I'll also put in the show notes of the new. How deep does this go? Like how far back? How many bombers? (laughs) It's like Russian nesting dolls. (laughs) Yeah. This story just never stops. Oh my God. This is a photo of the, what the hell? B-36. Is this? ridiculous plane uh i want the the audience to know like the i mean it's comical (laughs) and you can see the (laughs) little ants like the people yeah yeah yeah, yeah. this is hilarious yeah and so this is like it beside the previous super bomber and so it was designed (laughs) in order to be able to go this far it was designed with six propeller engines Mm. each engine with 28 cylinders um, that's a lot of cylinders. I don't know how a lot many of cylinders. is a lot, but that sounds like a lot. That's a lot. Okay. Um, unfortunately, though, after these giant propellers were designed and the engines were designed, they're found to cause too much turbulence on the wings. So the last minute, they modified them to instead be installed not in front of the wings like you normally would, but on the back of the wings, which you can see in the photo. Oh, that's what that... That's so weird. It's really weird. So it's yeah. like the propellers are actually pushing the plane. That seems like it would be less efficient. Well, it actually helped with turbulence. Yeah, like um, you said, but it's just weird. Yeah, well, one consequence is that if you install an engine backwards from the way it was designed, mm-hmm. um, airflow and cooling doesn't work the same way. Yeah. And so it ended up uh, causing the engines to have a bit of a tendency to overheat and light on fire. Okay, that seems like a negative for your giant crazy plane. Yeah, but there's already 400 of them on their way, so we don't really have time to like... <laughs> 
redesign this whole thing from scratch. So, you just keep so a, a fire extinguisher on hand, or what do you? You just keep a fire extinguisher on hand. Okay. You just, uh, you know, just got to keep maintaining them. Yeah. Um, actually, these engine fires of this plane were what led to the first loss of an American nuclear weapon, which we talked about many episodes ago in British Columbia. Yeah. Uh, they, they, one of these crashed. So we actually have talked about this plane before, but not referencing the plane in particular. Interesting. Uh, and it was because of these engine fires. So, oh, and also I found it quite amusing that this weird configuration resulted in the plane making a very loud, easily recognizable hum that betrayed it as it approached. Oh, great. Well, that's what you want. For your <laughs> that's what you want in a plane. bomber. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you yeah. want everyone to know that you're coming. So six propellers, cool. Uh, that's enough to get this thing around, right? But in the meantime, while this is all going on, since scientists invented a little thing called the jet engine, mm. yeah, it's kind of a cool. It's a cool new thing. But the plane's already been designed. They just bolted a jet engine onto it. No, no, they didn't do that. That would be ridiculous. They okay. bolted four jet engines. Onto it. <laughs> Two on the end of each wing. They made the wings uh, a little longer. Uh, uh, so I believe in the photo here, actually, this is a pre-jet engine. Oh, so this, is, this is small. Yeah, I don't see any jet engines on Yeah, there. so they bolt actually this more jet engines on, onto, <laughs> onto the ends of the wings. Barely a giant plane. Uh, so I'll, I'll show you a photo now of what it looks like when they bolt the jet engines on Wonderful. the ends of the wings. I'm very excited. Um, so that's a total of 10 engines, uh, <laughs> which led to the slogan, six turning, four burning. Wait, hold on. So there's there's just like fire coming off of the back of this. <laughs> well, I mean, that also happened in this case. <laughs> I think it's I think the, this photo is operating as intended. And then also sometimes it was on fire and people would joke this like six turning, four burning was like what the military brass would call it. But then it would be like two turning, two burning, mm. two fallen off. Like they mm. would joke about the unreliability of the various <laughs> parts. Okay. Um, so as you would maybe be shocked to learn with maybe. 10 engines of varying technologies, servicing these uh, was challenging. That seems hard. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Every time they serviced the plane, apparently they had to replace 336 spark plugs. Okay. Um, because they were fouled by the special fuel the engines required. Uh, apparently they had a, the engines had a prodigious appetite for oil requiring a 100 gallon tank of oil per engine. What? (laughs) I don't make the rules. No. I mean, that's, that's, this is one of the things where it's like, okay, we designed the plane, we start flying it. We're like, Oh, it's burning a lot of oil. We don't have time to redesign the plane. Well, we're just going to give it more oil. Yeah. I mean, what else would you do? Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, you could like take a bit, go back to the drawing board, but Ain't no big guy time for that. We got to fly unpleasant things 10,000 miles to, to Russia. So we got to, we got to get these planes fine. Uh, of course, so they need tons of maintenance, but they're too big to fit any airplane hangar. So apparently crews were often doing maintenance outdoors in like Alaska and the Arctic and the places that they're like stationed in minus 50 degree weather, which is one of those fun temperatures that's like the same in Celsius. Yeah, and Fahrenheit. that's where you hit it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so basically maintenance was a, a disaster, um, but that wasn't actually the thing that really killed the, the program. The worst thing was that they were incredibly slow. That also seems like a problem. Yeah, it's not. Well, I mean, initially it was okay. According to one pilot, uh, it was described as flying. These airplanes was described as sitting on your front porch and flying your house around. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of how nimble they were. They had had a top cruising speed of 230 miles an hour, which is, I guess, you slow. know, yeah, it's pretty, I mean, it's fast for a car, but mm. like there are cars that go that fast and uh-huh. this is like a military uh, plane. Um, and so that ended up being a problem. And, you you know, want that, your jet to be faster than a car. 
Yeah, you want it to be faster than a car, and you also <laughs> want it to be faster than the blast radius of the nuclear bomb that you might drop, which oh, 230 miles an hour is not. That's nice. Well, I mean, it's just kind of prudent uh, well, for I mean, a, a plane whose mission is to... It's polite. Pretend, yeah, I mean, to the... To, to the, the people flying the plane. The crew. I mean, it increases the chance that they're willing to drop the bomb, which they may not have been when the blast radius of the thing is more than 230 miles an hour. And so they did some tests that confirmed, yes, if one of these planes was ever to have dropped a nuclear bomb, it would be a one-way mission. <laughs> I mean, the world's like super screwed anyway. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, At that point, it's just funny that they're like, you could get away. It's like, really? Okay. Well, apparently it was pitched as like, well, actually the range is longer then because <laughs> yeah, it doesn't need to come. Uh, 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 that's yeah. awful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then, so the plane was already you know, being, it was a struggling program. Um, and then in 1950, um, which is only like a couple years after these started getting going, Russia introduced the MiG-15, like fighter jet, mm. which could just catch up and knock out any of these out of the air, like basically trivially. Yeah, so two years after entering service, it became useless. Again, a problem. Yeah. So so the plane entered service in 1948, became obsolete in 1950, and in 1955 was replaced by the legendary B-52. Cool. I saw two funny things as I was following along with all the links you were saying <laughs> that I thought I would share, if you don't mind. Yes, please. The first one is that the, that the Convair B-36, its like nickname was the Peacemaker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the Boeing B-52 that replaced it, its nickname was the Strato Fortress. Yes. Feels like a different approach. A little bit of a different feel. I think I'm not entirely sure if the Peacemaker, um, if the nickname came like early on or if it came after they were sort of justifying. Sure it wasn't useful. <laughs> not useful in combat. Yeah. Uh, very expensive uh, weapons program. Yeah. Um, it never flew in combat and never fired a shot. Wow. No, the second thing that I thought was really random and funny was that you mentioned that they, they needed at least like 10,000 miles, mm-hmm. which was based on the idea that they needed a combat range of at least 5,700 miles, the length of a Gander Newfoundland to Berlin round trip. Which is, I guess, that was the closest uh, friendly territory they could launch from. I guess so, but it is kind of amusing that Gander Newfoundland was the... <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> that was the place that they were like it's got a very be threatening place yeah yeah but most of the streets in gander are named after famous aviators oh i didn't realize it was in aviation town yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently they started scrapping them in 1956 eight years after they entered service and by 1959 <laughs> there were five which were put in museums what did they cost per per jet do you know four million dollars which nowadays is like four million dollars in, in their money, yeah, in their money in the in the nineteen forties era, which I I think it was less than the cost of the the B fifty two. I think like by the time the B fifty two came out a few years later, they were on full like Cold War money is no object. Let's just like make the best plane and put all the dollars into it, and it will last a hundred. I mean, I'm sure they didn't expect it to last a hundred years when the last plane lasted eight years. <laughs> they, they they really don't build these things with that idea in mind, and and then it's just crazy. I mean, you know, this is like I think we were talking a, some number of episodes ago about like people whose job it is to. It's probably the one about the date thing that you mentioned. The people whose job it is still to like do COBOL programming or whatever. Oh yeah. You know? There's like all these computers around doing really important things that 
nobody thought would still be in service now and that just need to be maintained and that like no parts exist and you know everything has to be custom made and everything because it's just cheaper to do that than to replace them or whatever and it's just crazy like the, there are people out there whose whose job it is presumably to be mechanics for a plane that was that first flew in 1952 yeah and and that there were like some design decisions at that time that, that were they wouldn't short-sighted. make now. <laughs> <laughs> like that they wouldn't have made a year or later. even just like a mistake it's just like oh yeah. we should probably shouldn't have made that Oh, yeah, no doubt. Way. There's probably some stuff that they have to do that's just wrong. Yeah, that's it's just, just like, like it, it was fine. But like within a few years, they realized, oh, actually, it would be easier to maintain if they did this other thing. Right. But they did. It's like, well, the next plane will do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In 2052 or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, yeah. So I, I, I enjoyed that that kind of like adventure down you know research vortex of mm. this plane. It's like, why have I never heard about the the, you know, adventures of this 400 planes were made yeah. like they should have done things but apparently it was uh yeah not particularly successful at doing things that's great yeah my fact for you i guess if this person had been alive in in 1952 they might have made the same choice i don't know <laughs> okay <laughs> that's a, that's an incredible segue uh-huh uh-huh i'm picking up what you put down fun fact Rutherford B. Hayes was elected president in one of the closest elections in American history. It led to the end of Reconstruction and the beginning of Jim Crow. Rutherford B. Hayes. I believe that was the president we referenced in the episode with Tiff. Oh, you referenced both of these presidents, my friend. Oh, nice. <laughs> We've got and an obscure two- presidential follow-up going on. <laughs> <laughs> and the two of you said, no one knows anything about Chester A. Arthur or Rutherford B. Hayes. And I was like challenge accepted we will change that <laughs> i'm so excellent glad. i'm so glad you figured out what i so, was doing so early on you said i wonder if you'll figure out what i'm doing and yeah. i'm like okay i have figured it out and yes. i'm excited about it so um <laughs> I, I was saying before that we had like a whole chapter on chester a arthur in the Canadian yeah. textbooks rutherford b hayes not as much no i know and that makes sense <laughs> i would say more and more of just like a few pages yeah because when i was doing this research finding a fun fact for chester a. arthur was actually very easy he was already on my topics list that's why i wanted oh, really? to do this yeah, oh, yeah. okay because <laughs> i just love that story about the patronage thing and the, and the woman's letters and stuff okay um but rutherford b hayes was a little more of a challenge although before i even go into his fact there's a side fact which relates back which is that remember i told you that chester a arthur was had the cushy ports job yes as the yeah. ports commissioner in new york mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so he was fired from that job by rutherford b hayes ah. who was trying to clean up the federal patronage system in new york when he got elected president oh ah, okay yeah so that's not the fact though as i said the election of rutherford b hayes was one of the closest elections in American history. So the election of 1876 was between Democrat Samuel J. Tilden and Republican Rutherford B. Hayes. And when it ended, Tilden had 184 of the 185 electoral votes that he needed to win. Ooh. So close in the electoral votes way, not just like the popular vote or a, you know, one swing state. You're talking we're talking about the actual election right. that directly elects the right the president. Yeah. So, four states were unresolved. And both parties reported that their candidates had won the state. Oh. Yeah. Also, hmm. one Hayes supporting electoral voter from Oregon was deemed ineligible 
because he was an elected or appointed official by mm. the Democratic governor and replaced with a Democratic elector. Uh, that sounds like shenanigans to me. Yeah. The whole thing is a scheme on top of a scheme <laughs> on top of a scheme. So the election featured massive amounts of fraud in mm. multiple states. Mm. For example, in South Carolina, 101% of all eligible voters were counted. See, that's, I mean, I'm all for people getting out the vote. Yeah. That's right. a aggressive, though. But I, yeah, I, I kind of, I mean, my support really goes up to 100%. And really, <laughs> I'm going to be... I'm going to be skeptical after 97, 98%. Yeah. Because yeah. you're getting into some, there's got to be someone who's, you know, sick that day or something, yeah. you know. So at the time, the ballots, they would have everything written on them, but then also there were apparently a lot of illiterate voters. Sure. And so they would have a symbol of the party printed on the ballot for the party uh, that you, so you would know which one Did they have like the, the, the donkey and the elephant? I don't think so because the, the, Republican symbol of the day was Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> well, you know, go with your brand what, you, what, you, what you've got, right? Right. But mm-hmm. many Democratic ballots were falsely printed with Abraham Lincoln on them. Mm. Confusing. Is it like a bring your own ballot those voters. No, the, the, the party, party machines of the Democratic Party in those states just printed the, the, the Republican ballots or their own ballots with the Republican symbol on them. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'll have more fun facts about like minor facts about this because there's a bunch of them but i just to, to resolve it the dispute led to the compromise of 1877 which is fascinating in its own right and basically what happened is this like commission was set up between like the supreme court justices and five democrats and five republicans and they were all like hashing it out and what ended up happening is a side deal was made hmm. where hayes was given all of the remaining votes in exchange for removing federal troops from the South that had been occupying it since the end of the Civil War, enforcing what was called Reconstruction. Oh, interesting. So this is back when the Democrats were on the, well, I mean, everyone was racist then, but they were on like the more <laughs> racist side. And the Democrats were like, okay, we'll yes, let you be president. Yes, this is when the, party, the Republican Party was the mm-hmm. party of ending slavery. Right. And then, uh, okay, so, so in, he, in order to get basically after the kind of semi-hung election there was some wheeling and dealing yeah and they were able to say okay if you let me be president i will do this thing yeah so hayes himself and not that this is a defense of anything but he actually was not in favor of ending reconstruction he was pro reconstruction Mm -hmm. but his party did this deal and so basically the they the minute he got elected he removed all of the troops and he kind of would have probably had to anyway because the Congress was led by the Democrats at that point, and they refused to authorize any payment for the uh, to support the troops. But either way, he did what he was what the compromise was made him do or was he was supposed to do. And it led to the sharecroppers and Jim Crow and b- brutal reinstatement of of white supremacy and co- total disenfranchisement of, of black citizens in the South and the next, you know, hundred years uh, up until the civil rights movement of complete and utter yeah, yeah, maybe more dramatically than if there had been like an orderly, because you, you would want, I mean, if you're going to plan that out, I imagine you'd want a ramp down and certain Well, and also you'd want, you'd want to like, yeah, you'd want to have overseeing stuff. You'd want a Civil Rights Act and things like that. Yeah, little things yeah. like that. Yeah, so some other, some other t- so that's all very unpleasant, but some other random facts about the election itself. So Hayes' VP candidate was this guy who... Hayes himself had recently been heard before the announcement of the of who it was saying, I'm ashamed to say, who is Wheeler? 
And then that was the guy who was his <laughs> VP candidate. <laughs> Well, at least he was ashamed. Yeah, yeah. Upon his defeat, the other guy, Samuel J. Tilden, said, I can retire to public life with the consciousness that I shall receive from posterity the credit of having been elected to the highest position in the gift of the people without any of the cares and responsibilities of the office, <laughs> which is like... Like Al Gore. <laughs> pretty great. Yeah, because... So actually, Tilden is the only time in American history that the person who won a majority of the popular vote didn't win the election. Because in the past, like people like Al Gore got the most popular vote. Yeah, they yeah. got the plurality, but not the majority. They they like 48% versus 46%. Exactly. So it remains the election to this day with the smallest electoral vote victory, with Hayes winning 185 to 184. I mean, you can't get smaller than that. Nope. And it is the election with the highest voter turnout among eligible voters in American history at 81.8%. At least according to the statistics, including 101% voters. I love uh, that fact. Uh-huh. So, yeah. I mean, you know, but also like 81% we or 82 if you round, like these days we get, what, 30 something is like incredible. Is it that low 30? It's really bad. Oh man, that's and low. Hayes did not. We get that much in like a city election. <laughs> exactly. And uh, among the many reasons you have not really heard of Rutherford B. Hayes is that he was a one-term president because as one of his campaign promises, he had promised not to run for re-election. It's an interesting campaign promise. Just once. If you elect me, I will go away. Yeah. Yeah. Don't yeah. worry. Prior to his becoming the nominee, everyone thought that uh, Ulysses S. Grant was going to run again. He was. He had already served two terms. Mm-hmm. And... and Congress, actually, the Democrat-controlled Congress, passed a law, basically like a resu- like a non-binding resolution saying that anyone who ran for more than two terms was a dictator. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they ended up, it was, a, it was a later general who ended up inspiring them to actually just change it so they can't, right? No. Wasn't it? Who would, no, it was FDR. Was it? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not general, but like war. Uh, yeah, so FDR hero, won, I was say. elected four times and... And then then it's just like, was he going to run again or were they were just like, let's cap this off? No, he just died. He died like Uh, early in the fourth term. He didn't, he only served three terms. He, he died shortly after the fourth election. Right. But there was some acknowledgement that like, maybe just, yeah, it was a little popular war hero. Let's just, because by the way, because of the, uh, the, the deal that had been made, many Democrats never considered Hayes election legitimate and referred to him as rather fraud and his fraudulency for the next four years, <laughs> which are just great. Those are great. I mean, that's things. something people would do today. Yeah, it's 100%. Yeah, not much has really changed, no. unfortunately. Yeah, so. sometimes when I'm feeling really down about, like, the degradation of social discourse, I'll hear little stories like that, and I'll be like, huh, you know what? Yeah, maybe no, it's, that, you know, maybe just was always a little immature. I mean, obviously, in many ways, it's gotten worse. But Yeah, yeah. And then finally, his his wife was, like, very much a teetotaler. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and he was not as much, but he he also didn't really drink. And the first reception at the white at the Hayes White House had wine, but Hayes was apparently dismayed at drunken behavior, and it led him to follow his wife's temperance leanings. And they never served alcohol again during his entire time in office. Yeah, huh, that's interesting. I always found the word teetotaler interesting, but you can put that on your etymology. I would love list. to, yeah, because yeah, it's I mean it's just a funny word. <laughs> and it also sounds like a drunk person t- to me if you if you I didn't yeah know it, what it's, it's like, like it means exactly he's a real teetotaler you're like oh okay i get it see i to me it sounds like someone who totes tea around i mean it might be that well we'll find you, out you in a future episode yeah. yeah um so for my next fact i was feeling like it would be nice for people to hear a little bit about the convair b36 <laughs> oh 
which also is called the Peacemaker. Wait, didn't yeah, we just th- talk about this? Is it the same plane? <laughs> you know, it's the same plane. Okay. <laughs> I just I found out like... too many facts and I had to split it up. <laughs> I love it. Bonus fun fact. Okay. The Convair B-36 was so huge and so not very useful that they had a program of trying to retrofit it and mm. experiment with it. Um, one of fun. the experiments was they actually retrofitted this plane with a nuclear reactor to what? see that if it could be a viable alternative form of propulsion. What? They literally put a one megawatt <laughs> nuclear reactor on this plane man, with a four ton lead shield in between the reactor and the cockpit because uh, for obvious reasons and a one foot thick leaded glass windshield. Yeah. And actually fired that thing up while flying i feel like we could do a whole episode on like just the kinds of things that people used to do like the kinds of things products that used to get made when there were no safety standards of any just kind. no consideration of the consequences like zero just like the most insane things that looking at it today we're just like what like this is a plane about? that was like known for lighting on fire and crashing yes. and they put a nuclear reactor on it let's put a nuclear reactor and fire it up yeah and just i mean we're talking about a plane that had fire coming off it even when it was working correctly <laughs> like oh um, and my plus God. like honestly like putting a nuclear reactor where you're moving around like it doesn't stay in one place yeah, it's just just uh, everything about that is terrifying. They flew. They had eighty nine flying hours with it critical, oh. like at at well, well actually eighty nine hours. It wasn't just like a turn it on. You're like, yep, yeah, yeah, we proved it's possible. But like they're just like flying around, just like hopefully nothing happens. Hopefully not causing nuclear destruction when this plane lights on fire and or something goes wrong with the reactor. They um, like vibrating and oh my god, that is insane. Yeah, they also tried rigging it up. Because it was so slow and it couldn't defend itself when the Russian like fighter jets started to to come around, so they they tried rigging it up to because it was so huge to have little like attachment planes that could, they called parasite planes that the big plane could launch to try and no. like defend itself, like a like a Death Star, like a Star Destroyer with like Tie Fighters coming off of it. Yes, exactly, like a Star. That's Destroyer. actually pretty cool. So I'll show you. Yeah, but if that cool. in that case, it should have been called the Strato Fortress yeah you would think right <laughs> so if you if you do this though like there's still because it's a really big plane but to have a bunch of smaller planes they have to be pretty small oh those are so cute yeah so they created the mcdonald xf 85 goblin That's which was so small man. that it could like dock to the wings of yeah. the plane which apparently they had some tests that it was successful but uh apparently the pilots uh found redocking the parasite plane to be challenging I mean, um, it sounds challenging. Yeah, I mean, like it's giant, burning and turning uh, airplane, and uh, you're trying to dock on it. But apparently, that wasn't the the worst thing about it. it the biggest problem was that uh, uh, these little tiny planes were also useless against the, the <laughs> Russian jet fighters. <laughs> oh basically, if you God. look at this, if you I'll put it in the show art too. But this uh, little goblin, it basically looks like a single jet engine with a little cockpit sticking out of the top. I wonder if they would have been better served just taking the money they spent on all this and giving it to the Russians. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like, hey, please don't bomb just, us. just yeah. Here's just we'll pay you. It was referred to as a billion dollar blunder, which I don't know like okay. exactly how they measure. That seems arbitrary. It sounds. I mean, it's the kind of thing that I'm sure the the opposition actually it wasn't the opposition government. I think it was the Navy that was saying that because the Navy wanted this Their Air Force money thing. Yeah, of yeah. course. Um, but uh, if you just said, hey, Russia, we'll pay you a billion dollars, just like. 
don't build any more stuff for a few well, especially years. knowing what we know now about you know how desperate russia was for money yeah they make that deal yeah totally yeah <laughs> that's wild. but instead they spent it baking nuclear reactors on airplanes <sighs> and tiny goblins hanging off of yeah yeah, yeah. i i like the goblin thing i'm, I'm into that <laughs> <laughs> i mean it is cute yeah, Which, they're really cute. I don't know if that's what we're going for, but no. But those are really cute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you kind of want to just want to tickle his chin. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> yeah. I agree. Uh-huh. That is that's great. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to tell you something that I know you don't know. Okay, that's, that's how exciting. this. That's actually the whole premise of the show. That's the premise of the show. <laughs> Being a parent of a newborn is exhausting. Oh, really? <laughs> I think maybe that... you think maybe you did do that. Well, it's okay. Sometimes you have a fact you think it's going to be surprise, uh, but then it turns out a surprise. surprise. Knows about it. I'm, but then we can talk about. I'm it. less tired than I was last time. That's good. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. this is what we were talking about a bit last time. Is that you are in the stage of rapid improvement? That's true. Yeah, yeah. He, my child, grew one and a half ounces a day every day for the last two weeks, and therefore is suddenly able to sleep for longer stretches of a time than he was previously. Right, because his, his stomach is probably larger than a walnut now. It's much, much bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exciting. Yeah. How you doing? Good. A little bit. Uh, things are a little bit hectic, but overall oh, okay. good. And yeah. just like I feel like I have slightly too many balls in the air. I've mm. taken on too many initiatives mm. i need to like ship some things and yeah you know, clear the clear some decks gotta clear some decks i've yeah. got uh um i've been on a like a management and leadership and learning kick in the last few months okay and learning about lots of ways that i could be doing my job better uh-huh. which is both like exciting but then also oh god all the things i should be doing <laughs> yeah. right yeah no no for sure there's so yeah. many processes i'm not following uh, well that's a <laughs> That's a bottomless pit where, I, uh-huh. you know, I, I'm, you know, I don't know a big believer in process, as you know. Yeah, I think that the um, the idea of minimum viable process yes. kind of appeals to me. Yes. And that you can actually have not enough, and then you're just not supporting your team, and then you have people, you know, the, the organization making the same mistake multiple times, or something that someone on the team has learned is then the wheels getting reinvented on other part of the team like those are signs that we're not up to the the minimum amount of process but anytime it, somebody's doing something just because that's the process or if somebody says well you didn't follow the process you know then that's those are yellow flags then yeah so what i like more than process at this point is paved paths hmm okay so yeah. the idea that if you if what you need to do is something that is very commonly done at your organization, there should be a paved path for that. And it should be, there should be tools in place and documents in place and ways for you to do it that make doing that thing easy. And as long as what you need to do falls within the parameters of the paved path, it should be pretty straightforward. You know, if you need to, for example, an example of a paved path might be everyone needs to add new devices to the developer portal. Right? Yes. It's really awesome if you set up some kind of Jenkins job or some kind of script or some kind of task that makes it really easy for folks to to add their devices to the certificates. 
it instead of each person being like googling how to add device to right. app store connect and then whatever. breaking things because they're going into that and then going interface. xcode and say fix <laughs> yeah and then clicking fix and then everything's broken with no uh you know history uh-huh. so that's the kind of thing where it's like that's great but then if someone comes in and they're for some reason they need to do something unusual you know then they they're there's not a boxing in they just can follow the paved path realize that they're what they need is not on the path and then they can figure out how to do it anyway and then determine whether or not this is another path that should be paved or if this was just a situation that doesn't it was kind of a one-off and doesn't require that level of uh commitment from the organization to like invest in the tooling and resourcing that might be required for that path i think the key thing that we're learning or and like ike you know, the scar tissue, but I think a lot of the people on our team, Steam Clock has been like the most professional team they've worked on. So it's not mm-hmm. like they're, they haven't seen it go too far. Yeah. And so one of the things I'm always trying to educate people about and convince people of is the, the cost is not the creating the doc or the tool in the first place. It's the cost is keeping it being trustworthy yeah. and true. Yeah. Yeah. That's the number one thing. Cause it's like, you can go crazy for like a week. It's like when someone decides to do something like I'm going to clean up all the color categories we have in this, in this code base. I'm going to make it one color category with all the colors in it and everyone's going to follow it. And it's going to be a design system. It's going to work great. And that lasts, first of all, it takes forever. And then it lasts for like a week or something. And then someone unknowingly adds another color that's very similar or doesn't use it or codes it in code. And then it just starts to rot immediately upon being done. Yeah. Unless you're like, it's important and so we have like unit tests and and uh, post commit hooks and stuff that enforce it. Exactly. Because it's important. Or if it's not important, then it's not Yeah, important. but oftentimes it's like important enough that someone put the time in, but not important enough to maintain. Yeah. Well, and that's when you found a pet peeve instead exactly. of like a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.